The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, our topic is our juror ancestors. And my guests are Judy Russell and Paul O'Neill, who is the commissioner of jurors for Ulster County, where I lived. Now, how this show all came together. In February, I was summoned to be a juror for Ulster County, and I looked at that and thought, I do not want to do this. <laughs> and I'm self-employed. I really was resistant to doing that. But I showed up uh, to the Ulster County Courthouse, and Paul was there to greet us. He gave us a wonderful pep talk that just turned my day around. And so I went through the process. Uh, I actually was questioned to be a juror, and I was watching how this whole process was happening uh, before my eyes. And uh, eventually, I, I think we were uh, four hours into the day, the case was settled. And so none of us had to serve on a, a jury. So I thought this would be such a great show to feature what it was like for our ancestors to be part of a jury, what the history of, of the jury system is. Um, so that's how the show came about. So I invited Paul, uh, who, who, as I said, is the commissioner of jurors for Ulster County, and Judy, who is the legal genealogist. And I think we're going to have a great show today. So uh, Judy and Paul, thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Um, so as I ask all of my guests at the beginning of the show, where were you born, raised, your education, and your career? So let's start with Paul. Uh, I was born in Newburgh, New York, uh, which is right outside of Ulster County. And I grew up in New Paltz, New York, which is a small town in Ulster County. And I went uh, to school through high school in New Paltz. I then went to college at SUNY Binghamton uh, in New York. And I went to law school at the George Washington University down in Washington, D.C. Uh, and after I graduated uh, from law school, I practiced law for 15 years, uh, including 14 years as a prosecutor with our district attorney's office. And then I was appointed commissioner of jurors uh, about seven years ago. So I've been doing that ever since. Okay. So then you've been in Ulster County all that time, as a, a, working with the DA and then now with the jurors? Yes. I was, you know, I went away for college. I went away for law school. I lived in North Carolina very briefly after law school. But I've been in Ulster County yeah, for, uh, pretty much my entire life. It's a beautiful okay. place here. All right. And then how did you get interested in the law? I really got involved in the law almost by default. Uh, so I can't say that there was – it was a, a passion that I had since childhood. Uh, when I went to college, everybody at, at, in SUNY Binghamton was – they were either pre-med or pre-law. I was neither. Uh, I've always been interested in history, so I was – which pushed me into the history and political science uh, majors – and then kind of by default, uh, it was either really pre-law or pre-med. Uh, I was 
mathematically and scientifically inept. So uh, it, by default, I was pushed into pre-law and uh, just took the LSAT and ended up going to law school. So, and, and I'm very fortunate to have done so. Okay. And you, you mentioned history. So how, how are you interested in history? And then are, does that uh, correlate to genealogy as well? I've always had an, an interest in history, uh, and I've all, always had an interest in our, our local history here. Ulster County, Kingston, which is the county seat in particular, has had a, a very storied history. It's been it's the birthplace of New York State, and it really played a, a, a played a role in in the formation of the United States. So uh, I've always had an interest in that. That leads generally to an interest in genealogy, um, but uh, you know that I can't say that I'm I have an overriding interest in genealogy, but it does it does come in as a result of just simply being a history buff, and and again I've used that with the jurors here to try and help people see when they come for jury duty uh, that the importance of their role and the importance that they play in history. We make history every day here, um, so I try and use some of the figures, the historical figures that have come through here. Uh, to help people see that they're part of something much bigger when they when they come here to serve as a juror. Okay, very good. And we're going to have Paul uh, tell us a little bit of, of what uh, his his talk is before the jury process starts in Ulster County. So, Judy, uh, switching to you now, uh, tell us your your background. Well, I'm I'm delighted to hear that Paul is a law graduate of George Washington University because I'm an undergraduate graduate of George Washington University. Um, I I grew up here in New Jersey, but I was born in Colorado. Um, my father was working for the Colorado School of Mines at the time that I was born. Discovered very quickly you can't raise a family on an academic salary, and went to work for Shell Oil, uh, and they sent us to the Netherlands for a year from the Netherlands to the New York office, and that's how I ended up in New Jersey. I went to, you know, my undergraduate degree is from George Washington University in journalism and political science, and my law degree is from Rutgers, the state university here in New Jersey. Um, I then practiced as a federal prosecutor and in private practice before going to work as a legal editor and teaching at Rutgers University for 25 years until I finally retired in 2014 from from the teaching part of it. So lots of intersections of the law and undergraduate schools here. Very, very good. And so then what drew you to the law? Um, I, I... Grew, I did grow up wanting to be a lawyer. I watched Perry Mason when I was a kid and, and remember sitting as, you know, seven or eight years old playing with marbles and setting them up as as the jury and the, the, the lawyers and the judge. So it was something I always wanted to do. I got sidetracked into journalism when I started college and then got back to the law simply because it is so central and so essential to the functioning of of society okay and then how do you uh how did you get interested in genealogy well my mother's family is scots irish and and anybody who's got scots irish in their background knows that means we grow up with the stories and eventually it, it occurs to you that perhaps it might be nice to have a clue as to whether any of the stories could possibly be true. And that's when you start 
doing your actual research and finding out that occasionally you may even encounter one that was true. Okay. Then, actually, I should uh, point out uh, that Judy does have her blog, and she writes about her her family and what her her findings are and the law. So, uh, we can find her at the Legal Genealogist. Uh, so, Judy, let's let's uh, focus now on the jury system. Do we know when the first uh, jury was used? You know, the, the reality is that it was an evolving concept, and it existed. You'll find things that look like our jury right back in in Roman times and and all the way forward through the Middle Ages and the Anglo-Saxon system and the Norman system and the Germans and the Scandinavians. Um, If we had to put a date on the first jury, we could probably go to like 1164 when Henry II of England who was, let's see, what's the technical legal term? Um, Having a pissing contest with the church, um, got into a fight over the ownership with land, and issued a writ directing the sheriff to summon 12 free and lawful men in each of the communities where these land cases were going to be fought. And they were going to decide the issue and not the church courts. So that's probably the the first thing where we can say the 12 man jury to determine the facts and only the facts probably that's the birthplace okay and and then are we seeing the jury system in all parts of the the world you or is it you just, will see- you will see it in all parts of the world, but there's something that's different about the, the we can call it French, Norman, English, common law system that, we, of course, incorporated largely here in the United States. And that's the fact that, that the, the jurors here are the exclusive judges of the facts and only the facts. They're not responsible for you know, deciding what the law is, but only what the facts are. So that division between the legal determination, which is up to the judge, but the facts being exclusively with the jurors, that's unique to the English system. Okay. And then with the English system, I was doing a little research before I uh, sent questions, uh, and became clear we've got the the jury trial under the English system and then we've got the bench trial. Can you tell us what right. what the, these are? There are certain issues. You know, there's a division in the law between what's called the the law courts and the equity courts or law causes of action meaning kinds of claims that come up and equity or chancery kinds of claims that come up. So if what you want is money damages or a determination of criminal guilt or innocence, that's going to go to a jury. And our Constitution creates an entitlement to trial by jury if the defendant wants it, or the plaintiff wants it, both civil and criminal actions. But there were some kinds of issues where there really aren't a whole lot of facts that need to be determined. It's more a matter of how the law gets applied. 
for example, an injunction, an order to do something or not to do something, would go to the bench, to the judge, rather than to the jury. And those tend to be your chancery and equity issues. Divorce cases, adoptions, um, anything that has to do with status would tend to go to a judge and, and not to a jury. Okay. Okay. So then in the United States, in addition to the English roots, we also have Dutch, French, and Spanish in, in right. different parts of what is now the United States. How, how did their legal systems uh, just briefly uh, uh, play out, and did they include juries as well? They, they did, but again, they, they would be more the what's called the civil law jury, which tended to be determining both the law and the facts, and to be very, a much smaller group of people and very dominated by um, an educated class and a, and a judge class. You have like professional judges in that group. In the Dutch system in, in New Netherland, um, there was a position towards arbitration to have both sides agree on people who would decide this without ever going to a trial. So a little bit different twists in that part of it than we have in the English system. Okay. And then I know Louisiana has some differences. Are they still under the, the French system in their court system? They are, they are still under what's called the civil law. In, in the state courts, not the federal courts. Federal courts go with the usual English common law system. But their state court is, is dominated by the, their civil law, which basically sets everything out as a matter of statute and doesn't have a lot of room for the judges to make determinations as to what the law should be. That, that's really a statutory system in, in Louisiana. It's a little bit different there. But they still okay. have juries. You know, you've still got the, the constitutional entitlement to a jury, even in Louisiana. Okay, okay very good. So, Paul, let's, let's now focus on Ulster County. How did Ulster County get its start with uh, trial juries? Well, Ulster County, uh, Kingston, which, again, is the seat of Ulster County, was settled in 1652 and 1653. The county system didn't uh, wasn't set up until 1683. So Ulster County didn't come into being until 1683. But the first court here in Kingston, uh, which at the time was called Wiltwick, was set up in 1661, and that was when it was still really a Dutch province. But when we're talking about that New Amsterdam was Dutch, it, it's not that it was a as we might see, like a Dutch colony, it was really the province of the Dutch West India Company. Uh, so it was originally intended to make profit, uh, and the settlement was in order to facilitate that. But the Dutch system did not have a jury system. When the first court was set up here in 1661, the court system was really composed of, of a, a shout um, uh, which was really a sheriff and prosecutor and rolled into one person, and three shepins, they were called, and they were three magistrates. So they would handle uh, civil proceedings uh, up to a certain monetary amount. Any criminal matter or any more significant civil matter would have to be heard down in New Amsterdam, which became New York City, 
uh, by the governor general and the council. Uh, the jury system doesn't come here until 1664 when the English take over from the Dutch. They institute uh, what are called the Duke's Laws. It was really the it had been given to James, Duke of York, who was the brother of King Charles II and subsequently became King James II. Uh, but when the Duke's Laws come in, then the jury system. And again, as Judy said, it's a, it was a constantly evolving process, uh, but the beginnings of the jury system here in Ulster County come in 1664. Okay. And, and then what types of courts were instituted in Ulster County that were using juries? Well, originally it was really they had equ- an equity court and they had a court of, of uh, common pleas. So the jury system wouldn't apply as we to everything as we see it today. But it, it became, you know, it became more and more important. And again, as you move towards independence, th- these issues become much more pressing. Uh, but, uh, for example, today the jury system applies to really it doesn't apply in family court proceedings. But it does apply in our county court, which hears uh, criminal matters. It applies in our Supreme Court, which hears civil matters. Our town and village courts, it applies to everything except for the most minor of criminal charges, Uh, you know, traffic tickets and things like that. In New York, we have violations, misdemeanors, and felonies. Misdemeanor, any misdemeanor uh, criminal charge or felony criminal charge, you have a right to a jury. Um, and as Judy said, the, the jury determines fact. Uh, they determine factual issues, not legal issues. So anywhere that there is a question of fact, uh, a jury, you have a right to a jury. Okay. So, so then it, here it applies New- really everywhere except for family court matters. Okay. So then here in New York, we could get a summons to serve on a jury from a town court, a county court? Uh, yes, Okay, and court, the state and federal? Court. Uh, yeah, federal court is separate from uh, the state courts. There's a completely separate federal uh, court system in New York. There's four districts. But, yes, people do receive summonses to serve as jurors in the federal court system. And in the we here in the Ulster County Commissioner Juror's Office, we handle all the criminal, uh, I mean, all this, the jury trials in Ulster County, which do we, the town and village courts, Uh, The city courts, uh, county and supreme courts, they all uh, have civil – they have civil and criminal jury trials. So we do summon jurors for all those. So you can get a summons for any of these courts. Surrogates courts, which handles uh, wills and estates, there is a right to a jury trial there on factual issues as well. It's rare, but you could receive a summons to serve as a juror on a a surrogates court matter. Very interesting. I, I did not know that about New York. Um, so, so Paul, let's let's uh, talk about the history of the Ulster County Courthouse. Now, this is the part where where he he started talking to us, uh, the the jurors who were there, and and just just hooked me because it was history. So, so Paul, tell us about the history of the courthouse. Uh, our courthouse, we are, we're very, very proud of the Ulster County Courthouse. The current courthouse building was built in, in 1818 and has had several additions put thereafter up until 1899. But the current courthouse is located the same on the same location as the original courthouse 
uh, on this property put up in 1683. So we have quite a history here going going back in time. Um, the, the preceding courthouse was the location of the New York State Constitutional Convention of 1777. Uh, the Constitutional Convention met here and formed New York State. So New York State really was born in the Ulster County Courthouse. Uh, the New York State Constitution was written here by uh, primarily by John Jay, one of our, our, our most unsung founding fathers. Uh, it, the New York State Constitution did become one of the basis for the United States Constitution a few years later when they met in Philadelphia. So we really do have a claim to being one of the birthplaces of the United States. John Jay was the first sitting judge in the Ulster County courthouse after New York became a state, uh, which we're very proud of. Uh, this is also the courthouse where Sojourner Truth's case was heard. And Sojourner Truth was a slave in New Paltz here in Ulster County in the early 1800s. It, it, it's, it, it's now known as a different town, but at the time the town lines were, were significantly different. Uh, but New York, you know, we forget that New York was uh, in the early 1800s was really one of the largest slaveholding states in the country. Um, and uh, and it be, the abolition of slavery began gradually. It started in 1799 and culminating culminated with, with uh complete abolition July 4th of 1827. Now, Sojourner Truth in 1825 had made an agreement with her then owner, who was a man named John Dumont. Uh, And the the agreement that they made was that if she did a certain amount of work in a one-year period and she she acted true and faithfully, uh, she would be freed in 1826. She would be freed one year early, uh, and her family would be freed as well. Uh, but at the end of the year, John Dumont reneged on his part of the agreement. He felt that she did not live up to, to, her, to her promise. Uh, during that year, she'd had a child. Uh, she'd also lost a couple fingers in an accident, so he felt that she did not. Uh, she felt very firmly that she did, uh, so she left. And, and if you've ever learned anything about Sojourner Truth, you've, uh, you, you learn about her famous walk to freedom. And that was very important to her because her mother had told her that it was a sin to run away. So it was very important to her that she not run away, that she walk. And she did. She walked uh, from John Dumont's home to a, a neighboring town. She had been told to go see a Quaker family. And when she arrived there, the, the head of the household was really on his deathbed, uh, and he sent her to another family. Uh, she brought her infant daughter with her, but she had to leave the rest of her family behind. Now, the laws that stood in New York in 1826 said that due to the impending abolition of slavery the next year, you could not sell a slave out of the state of New York. Uh, well, John Dumont sold Sojourner True's son Peter to a neighbor, uh, a man named Solomon Gedney, who subsequently sold Peter to uh, his son-in-law and daughter in Alabama, which was against the existing law. So Sojourner Truth walked to our courthouse, and she walked in, and she she started asking some of the attorneys who were there waiting to have their cases called if they could help her out, and somebody did. Uh, and her case was actually presented to a grand jury here in, in our present Ulster County Courthouse, uh, and they issued uh, an order to Solomon Gedney requiring him to appear here again in the Ulster County Courthouse and requiring him to bring Peter with him. And if he didn't, he had to pay $500. Uh, well, that was enough money at that time 
that uh, Solomon Getty actually got in a boat, went to Alabama, got Peter and brought him back here, uh, and the case was heard, and it really wasn't heard in a trial. Uh, we believe it was heard kind of in chambers. Uh, but at the end of that, uh, the judge had made a determination that Peter was leaving this courthouse that day with one person, and that person was his mother. Uh, so, again, it was a monumental case, and it made Sojourner Truth not only a national figure, it really made her into an international figure, and she spent the rest of her life fighting for equality, not only fighting against slavery, but she's really one of the first uh, people that we see fighting for uh, equality for women. Um, and all of that is a result of what's happened here. You know, in fact, if, if, if what happened here in our courthouse didn't occur, we never would have heard of Sojourner Truth, and she probably never would have been Sojourner Truth. Uh, when she appeared here, her name was Isabella. Uh, slaves weren't given last names, so she didn't have a last name. You may sometimes hear her last name as Isabella Baumfrey, and Baumfrey meant strong back in Dutch, and that's what her father was called. But the reality was she didn't have a last name. She was known simply as Isabella, and she didn't change her name to Sojourner Truth till many years later when she was already a noted abolitionist. So it's an important place we have here, and as you said, I, I like to start out with, when I speak to the jurors when they appear here uh, and just talk about some of the figures that have appeared in our courthouse as a way to have people see that uh, when they come here, they play a very important part. Uh, they play a very important role. And they're more, it, this is more than just coming in on a Monday or Tuesday. Uh, that by looking at these historical figures and, and the, the monumental things that they do, at the, you know, behind these people are really decisions made by all of us as jurors so uh again like you said when you appeared here you didn't want to be here uh and i'd hope that by talking about some of these people it, it you find it interesting but that you also do do see that your role in our justice system very nice uh you also mentioned Supreme Court justices coming out of Ulster County. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And we, there have been four judges who have presided in the Ulster County Courthouse who have gone on to become uh, United States Supreme Court judges. Now, they all weren't from here. Uh, they, would also, they would go around on circuit, the first being John Jay. Um, now in New York, our highest court is the Court of Appeals. But up until, I think, it was 1843, we did have, like most states, the highest court, uh, a Supreme Court. So after the New York State Constitution is passed, the Ulster County Courthouse became the New York State Supreme Court. Uh, and John Jay became the first Chief Justice. And he, he presided here until October 16th of 1777 when the British came to Kingston and burned everything, including the courthouse. And then the, uh, the capital had to move. But he subsequently went on to become the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and after that, we've had three others that have that have presided in our courthouse. Uh, there were Brockholz, Livingston, uh, Rufus Peckham, and a man named uh, Tom, uh, Smith Thompson. Okay. And then you also mentioned a grand jury. What is a grand jury, and how is that different from other courts? The grand jury is, you know, when people think of jury duty, they think of what you see on TV where there's a court proceeding and there's a, 
you know, attorneys yelling at each other and the judge pounding a, a gavel on the bench and the jury sitting there, you know, watching all this. First of all, that doesn't happen anyway. But a trial jury is you you come you're, when you're summoned, you come on in, you're asked questions regarding a specific case. Uh, and what they're trying to do is select a jury that has a su- as few preconceived ideas and beliefs about the specific issues of that case as possible. Uh, if you're selected as a trial juror, you will listen to one case, uh, you listen to the evidence, and at the conclusion of the trial, you would go into a deliberation room and make a decision. In a criminal case, you would decide guilt or innocence. In a civil case, you would de- make a determination uh, for or against uh, a, a party. A grand jury is is different. A grand jury uh, is composed of 23 people. A, a jury in a criminal case is composed of 12 jurors. In a civil case, it's six jurors. In a grand jury, we have 23 uh people who listen to any they any of our most serious criminal cases which are felonies uh they they determine whether there's reasonable grounds to believe that a felony has been committed and that the person so doing uh has that's been accused has has committed that so the grand jury is really a screening process for our criminal justice system um so, and if they determine that, then they issue an indictment, and then the case can proceed to a criminal trial. Uh, it's not set up. It's not in a courtroom setting. Uh, there's inside the grand jury. There's only the prosecutor, a witness, and a court reporter, along with the grand jurors. Um, it's the only place. It's you know the courthouses are public places. You can go into any of our courthouses and any of the courtrooms anytime and watch any trial. Um, it, it, we, you cannot be prohibited from that. The only place off limits is the grand jury. Um, so again, the grand jury is really a, a screening process for our criminal justice system for our most serious criminal cases. And then my understanding is that they they don't meet on successive days. They they maybe meet once or twice a week. Is that correct for a period of weeks? Yeah, here in Ulster County, they would meet two days a week for eight weeks. Um, and it, each county is different. There are places uh, in New York State where grand jurors would meet every single day. There are some that they might meet once a week or maybe even less. Uh, it depends on how busy the criminal justice system is. Uh, but it's a longer term. If you're selected as a, if you're summoned as a, as a trial juror, we have a call-in system. What we try and do is, is limit the number of jurors that we call. It used to be that if you got you were summoned, you were called in each and every day, and you had to appear. What we do is we try to call in only the jurors that we need. So you call in or log on to the website every night before, and you find out whether you have to appear. And you do that for a week. Uh, so it's a shorter period of time, but if you are selected, the, the trial will start immediately uh, and continue until it's completed. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, So we are going to take a break right now. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, you will see a few buttons. Uh, One is a follow button. If you uh, press that, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air and what the topic is and who the guest is. Uh, You'll also see some social media buttons. Please share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. Uh, You can also find uh, six years' worth of shows in the archive on uh, Blog Talk Radio, uh, and we've got uh, New York shows the first Wednesday of the month, and on the third Wednesday of the month, anything that strikes my fancy from genealogy and history. Uh, you can also take the Forget Me Not Hour on the go with you on iTunes, and you can find it under Jane E. Wilcox. Um, so today we're talking with uh, Judy and Paul and uh, focusing on our ancestors who were jurors. Uh, so Judy, um, let's let's uh, go back to colonial times in the United States. What were the qualifications to be a juror? In general, we're talking free white male property owners. They could be um, leaseholders if it was a substantial lease, a term of years. But in general, free white men who owned property. Um, no women at all until the passage of the 19th Amendment, and in most areas, no minorities. What do you mean most areas? Um, you know, as time went on, you would it, it, part of the issue is, is whether you could have Native Americans and African Americans not until they got the right to vote. But, for example, just let me give you a a, a statute out of Wisconsin in 1849. It provided that you had to be a citizen, a qualified voter, so male, 21 or older, and white, or you could be Native American but not a registered member of any tribe. So living out in the community without a tribal association, a Native American could serve on a jury in Wisconsin. Living as a tribal member, not eligible to be a juror. So there were those kinds of restrictions. Okay, because my my show from January talking about uh, the Oneida Indians, because tribal members means that they consider themselves a separate nation. In some respects, and and they were not trusted to apply American law and American concepts, and and to judge, and let's let's be candid here, to judge people that the majority community regarded as their betters. Sure, and then going after the American Revolution and into the 20th century, do we see any change in the qualifications? Yeah, as time goes on, a lot of things begin to happen. One is that the amount of money um, that you had to have in terms of property ownership went down as time went on. It was very high initially. They wanted only the elite of the community. Um, As more and more business was generated in the courts, that had to be lowered so that a, a broader spectrum of the community was brought in and you had more of the jury of their peers that was available. 
um, there were certain things that were that certain occupations that were generally exempt from jury duty. Uh, most ministers were exempt for the longest time, and I'm I'm sure Paul can tell you when this changed because it's very recent. Uh, lawyers and judges were exempt from serving as jurors. Uh, some jurisdictions, New York is a good example, firemen were exempt from serving on juries. Teachers, millers, ferrymen, um, lots of, of occupational categories where you would have um, exemptions. Well, and why Tavern were they owners. exempt? Well, part of it was the notion that um, these were occupations where you didn't want you didn't want to pull a teacher out of the classroom. You didn't want the one ferry that crossed the river to have to be shut down because the ferryman was sitting for six weeks on a jury. Uh, you didn't want the miller to have to shut down the mill. Um, for women, the general notion, first of all, was that women were not qualified, that they were not adequately educated, that they would be too emotional. Um, once women got the right to vote, you still had the issue of women with children. And in many jurisdictions, any woman, whether she had children or not, could say, I just don't want to serve. And that has been an evolving change where, yes, any woman could ask to be excused and she would be excused. And then it was only women with children. And then it was only women who could convince the judge that she should be excused. <clears throat> so it's, it's been an evolving process over generations. Okay. And then when they're using, or in the earlier times, when they're using uh, land as a qualification, are they looking at tax records? Tax records and um, land ownership deed records. So you would you would generally tend to get these the the jurors chosen from either the deed records or the tax records or both. And then how were they summoned? Do they, they get a notice hand-delivered yes. hand the, the to them? The sheriff was sent out, or the, the constable or the deputy sheriff was, was uh, sent out to summon these men, and they were exclusively men, to summon them into court. Um, there were very serious penalties for not appearing, and you'll see that in the jury records as well. Somebody won't show up, and he'll get fined. And then the next court session, he'll come in and explain, I tried to get there and I couldn't get across the creeks because they were all flooded, and then get the fine set aside. So some really interesting records about the, the summonsing and the process of, of even, you know, the, all of the names in many jurisdictions, say Colonial New Jersey is a great example, all of the names of the, the men who were qualified to serve as jurors would be put into a box. And then the statute in Colonial New Jersey provided that a boy under the age of 10 would pick the names out of the hat. And the theory, of course, being that he couldn't read, and so he wouldn't be selecting people that were skewed in a particular direction. And so then... 
in order to, uh, for a person to be selected to be actually be on the jury, it was just a matter of, of drawing a person's name. Well, it, so, it started with the, the selection just at random, pulling them out of the box or out of the hat. But then right from the very beginning of the jury system, there has always been the process that you went through and that Paul can talk about in detail called voir dire which is the questioning of jurors to determine whether they are actually qualified, first of all, to serve at all, and secondly, to serve on a particular case. So serving at all is, you know, do you still live in the county? Can you speak English? Do you hear and see well enough to serve as a juror? And service in a particular case is, do you know the parties? Do you have a pre-existing um, opinion as to how the case should come out? So those are the kinds of questions that are directed to the people once their names are pulled out of the hat. And for voir dire, I think is how, how you said it, when, when did mm-hmm. that start to come into the system? It's, it's been in the system right from the earliest records that we have, although the kinds of questions that could be asked have have changed. Um, In the very earliest days, in the 16 and 1700s, in the statutes that I looked at, you could not ask somebody about their personal history, like have you ever been convicted of a crime, because that was just, you know, that was rude. You didn't do that sort of thing. Today, that's an ordinary question. Um, and, and you have to answer it if you're summoned to jury duty. But we, we weren't interested in those sorts of things early on. So even the notion of what constitutes cause to be removed from a jury pool is, is a, an evolving concept. Okay, and, and actually let's, let's move on to today. So, Paul, what are the qualifications to be a juror now? The qualifications are, are very minimal. To, to serve as a juror, uh, you simply need to be a U.S. citizen residing in the county uh, where you're summoned, uh, over 18 years of age, uh, able to speak and understand the English language, and not having been convicted of a felony. Uh, those are the, the sole qualifications. And from there, then, you have other exemptions. So a qualification would mean that you cannot serve at all unless you meet these minimal qualifications. If you're qualified uh, based upon those qualifications, there are, then there are additional exemptions, which if you had a medical issue that would prevent you from serving something like that. Um, so those are the current qualifications that we use. So they're very, very minimal, and the intent is that the jury pool will be as inclusive as possible. And how do you find us? How, oh, what, how we in New York, and New York has one of the best ways to, to try, and again, the idea is always to make sure that the jury pool is as inclusive as possible. So we use the records of uh, New York uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, state tax return filings, uh, all, all public assistance records, uh, and voter registration. So if you're using uh, an Ulster County address for any of those, we will pick you up. So you figure that I will, I would be in one of those places to find me. One or more, 
Yes. Okay. Um, but you would have to be you if you're in any of those. We are at some point going to get you. And as Judy says, you know, randomness is 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 really very important. So it's ra- it's random whether you are. We pick your name up out of those, but the idea is uh, that at some point we will have everybody in. Okay. And then when I was there in February, I overheard uh, one of my fellow uh, prospective jurors. Uh, say that she was in her 70s, and when she was younger, she got a summons for jury duty, and it said actually on the summons that women need not respond. Uh, So I figured that that must have been in the 1960s for her. Now, was was that happening in the 1960s, and and when did that change? It was. Uh, It was, and it's it's very sad to to know that, first of all, until 1937, uh, being male was a qualification. So you were actually unqualified to serve as a juror in New York as a woman until 1937. From 1937, believe it or not, all the way to 1975, it was an exemption. Uh, so you effectively had to volunteer uh, as, uh, as a woman. You were, you were qualified to serve, but it was an exemption, meaning you could say, you know, I'm, I'm a woman and you would be uh, removed from the jury pool. Uh, so it, it really, it, it's amazing to think that until 1975, that was, uh, it was an exemption. And Judy, were there other states, even into the 1970s, that had that as an exemption for women as well? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Women were probably the last categorical group to be added into the jury pool. Very and again, this, was, this becomes now an exemption. So women could serve. If you were, were a woman and you wanted to serve, uh, you could serve. Uh, but it was up to you whether you, just, you wanted to or not. Um, but again, as Judy said, in 1975, there was a United States Supreme Court case that said, uh, in this day and age, simply being a woman is not uh, an exemption for jury service. Uh, so there were a number of states until 1975 that where this existed but come 1975 that's the end of it okay and in the 1970s we're getting title nine and and you know all of all of the federal uh types of laws uh regarding women that's that's very interesting so on that note we are going to take another break uh this is the forget me not hour and we will be back in just a minute Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on June 7th 
at 10 o'clock in the morning. This is uh, my New York show, and we're going to be focusing on the New York's uh, Supreme Court records that are at the New York State Archives, and my guest, guest will be Jim Foltz. Uh, now, this show came about with the transfer of the early New York Supreme Court records from the New York City District that were in New York City, and they were transferred to the New York State Archives only a few months ago. So we're going to find about find out more about courts on uh, June 7th with the New York Supreme Court. And then on June 21st, also at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, uh, on Eastern Time, the topic is going to be Freemasons and Masonic Records. And my guest will be Alvy Davidson. He is a 32nd degree Mason. Uh, so we're going to uh, find out about uh, the history of Freemasonry and then what types of records uh, were generated with the lodges. And then after that, the forget-me-not hour is going to be going on a hiatus. Um, it's going to be indefinite uh, and potentially restarting the show in the late fall or uh, maybe early in the year for 2018. Um, so the Freemasons show will be the last show for a while on the forget-me-not hour. Um, I want to point out in October, I am going to be speaking at uh, two all-day seminars. The first is October 7th in Buffalo. Uh, it is with the Western New York Genealogical Society. And uh, Josh Taylor, the uh, president of the New York GMB, will be speaking as well, as well as Blaine Bettinger, our DNA expert. Uh, so that's on October 7th. Uh, you can uh, register for that on the Western New York Genealogical Society's website. And then on October 21st, uh, for the Central New York Genealogical Society, also an all-day seminar. And that's totally me uh, for four talks, and that will be held in uh, the Syracuse area. And you can sign up for that as well. So today we are talking more about our jurors. And so, Judy, now the, the, the thing that I'm sure all of the genealogists are, are wondering, where are we going to find the records that have our ancestors who were jurors? There were just so many possibilities, but the, the, the most likely place that we're going to find them is in the court records. There may be jury lists that are, that are actually recorded right in the court minute books um, in terms of who the people were who were being summoned. And then, of course, any time a jury was selected, those names are usually recorded in the, the, the minute books as well. Um, if there were separate lists of jurors, they're ordinarily in the record groups for whatever the local court records are. Um, but most of these are still in the, the local courthouse records. You know, colonial era records, early records have often been moved to state archives for preservation, but a lot of these records are still out in, in the county courthouses. Um, some may be in libraries, genealogical societies, local historical societies. I mean, I noticed that there is a, a historical society in Grantham, New Hampshire, that holds the jury lists for, for that town. And, of course, newspapers. Newspapers were fabulous sources uh, publishing jury lists, and, and at least are going to give us something to look at. So lots of possibilities, but the local court records are really where you're going to find the goodie. The good okay, stuff. so we, ha we have to go go to where our ancestors lived. Absolutely. And, and the kinds of stuff you can get if you really think about what's on a jury list. 
you know, you've got Robert Smith and Robert Smith, and they both live in Ulster County. Which one is which? The juror commissioner is going to have to distinguish between the Robert who was the son of Samuel and the Robert who was the son of John. Which one was being summoned? And that's usually in the jury list. The jury lists, particularly in early New York, listed occupations and towns of residence, things that wouldn't have been in the very earliest census records. The, and, go ahead. The, the mere fact that you find somebody's name on a jury list. You know he was a landowner or a freeholder. You know he was a white male and a certain age. You know that he wasn't in one of the categorically exempt categories. It nails his feet to the floor in that particular county at that particular time. And is there anything else that we might find in, in these yeah, records? The, the, the one that I think people overlook the most is that jurors were reimbursed. Um, they, were, they were usually given a, a jury fee, and right from the very earliest times, they were often paid mileage. So if you know that somebody was getting a dollar for jury service and $2 in mileage, that's going to help figure out physical proximity to the courthouse. In a lot of the very big early counties, knowing that somebody lived five miles from the courthouse or 40 miles from the courthouse is also going to help you distinguish between two men of the same name. So there's a lot of really good stuff if you look carefully in those jury records. And are we going to see differences between communities, between counties, between states? More between states than between communities, because jury qualifications tended to be set by statute at the state level. But you will find very serious distinctions between jurisdiction one and jurisdiction two. In Georgia, for example, in 1848, you had to be free, white, male, citizen, eligible to vote, but you couldn't be over age 60. That was a categorical um, disqualification. And the only ones who were exempt under the statute were ministers. One year later, Wisconsin, it was different. You had that issue of the Native Americans. You had categorical exemptions for judges, politicians, public officials, firemen, ministers, teachers, millers, ferrymen. So a much different statutory system in Wisconsin than you'd see in Georgia. So it's state by state. Okay. And then with the state courts and the federal courts, they're, they're on the ground in, say, let's use Ulster County since that's where we are, at least Paul and I are today. Are those records still going to be found on the local level, even though they're a state and federal court, or are they going to be moved elsewhere? 
great question because it gives me the opportunity to give my favorite answer, which is it depends. <laughs> now, first of all, federal courts, um, one thing to know is that anybody who was qualified to serve as a state juror was automatically qualified to serve in the federal courts of the district where where you lived. There's There's never been a separate set of qualifications for the federal courts over and above the state courts. Right from 1789, it's whatever you have to be for the state, that's good enough for us. But the records of every federal court are going to be held by the National Archives, and they're going to be distributed around geographically. Now, New York is easy because all of the federal trial court records from the federal courts in New York are in the National Archives in New York City. Um, but you take Virginia, for example, if you've got a federal case and you, you think maybe one of your ancestors was a juror in, say, the federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, you, know, you might think, well, the National Archives is right across the river in Washington, D.C. Uh, no. The federal court records for Virginia are held in Philadelphia. So you have to know which of the National Archives branches holds the federal records. Okay. Before I move to my next question for Paul, is there anything else you'd like to add about the, the records and where we're going to find them or what we'll see in them? You know, just that I think there is so much that we can draw from that, um, so many opportunities to get information out of those records that I, I think we don't want to overlook them. Okay. And, and Judy, you do a talk on jurors, correct? I do. And, and is it recorded? Can we find it anywhere? It was oh, the, the the first delivery was at the um, Federation of Genealogical Societies conference in Springfield, Illinois, in 2016, and it was recorded. So the FGS conference recordings from that conference will have 12 good and lawful men jury lists in genealogy. Okay, very good. And then, and then uh, for any society where you are speaking, that's one of the topics they can choose you uh, for you to do. It sure is, and it's it's a fun one. So I recommend it. <laughs> okay, all right. So Paul, let's let's talk about what it's like to be on a jury today. Uh, and as as I said, I was struck by uh, what you told us, uh, getting us ready to. Uh, possibly be chosen to sit on a jury. And there was one story in particular that you told about uh, somebody like me who came in and just did not want to be there and ended up getting chosen to be on a jury. Uh, so we, you start us with that and then, you know, what, what can we expect uh, for a jury today to be on a jury? Well, you know, what I had found, and I'd actually found this prior when I was a prosecutor, I had jury trials and, and I always spoke to the jurors at the end of the trial and ask them what they thought of the experience. And, and to a person, they really said the same thing. And they said kind of what you were saying, that when I showed up here, uh, to say I was unhappy to be here was the, would be an understatement. Uh, and the only thing that really made me angrier than having to appear was when I got selected. But to a person, they all say, you know, this was a great experience. And it's a great way to see that we do 
have the final say, uh, and especially in times like today that are so polarizing. Uh, and we people think that their their input doesn't matter. It really does, and the, the decisions that the jurors make affect each and every one of us every day. Uh, but the story that I refer to when I speak to jurors is, uh, you know, some I hadn't been in too long, uh, and I talked about uh, at the beginning. I talk about I tell people that I do think that they're going to find it to be an interesting experience. I I say what I had just said about you know, discussing what people thought of the experience after trials when I was a prosecutor. And there was a guy there who was just fit to be tied. And he stood up, you know, in front of, uh, you know, 150 people and actually stood up out of his seat and said, you know, what, what kind, well, I guess I have to preface that with, after you serve in New York State, you're exempt for to, from serving again in New York State courts for six years. You're actually ineligible to serve again for six years. But if you would want, you can reduce your ineligibility period by half to three years. Uh, you just have to let us know. Most of the people who serve as jurors on our trials do come down at the end and elect to reduce their eligibility period. And, and I always tell that to the jurors when I speak to them. And this gentleman stood up and said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What kind of idiot Reduce their eligibility period. You know, this is a waste of my time being here. Uh, I, I would never in a million years reduce my eligibility period. And I said, well, you know, I can't tell you whether you would or you wouldn't. Uh, but as I say, uh, I've found, I don't believe in jinxes, but I have found person, every time somebody comes in and, and does that and stands up and, you know, tries to really give me a hard time about jury service, they're invariably selected as a juror. Happens every time. Uh, it happens enough that I that I have to say, you know, again, I don't believe in jinxes, but now I do. So that gentleman was. I saw him later in the day, and he, if he could have been any angrier than he was when he came in the morning, he was then. And I said, I asked him. I said, you, you got picked, didn't you? And I couldn't even decipher what he said. He storms out the door, but he did come down to my office at the end of that trial, and he said, you know what? I apologize. Uh, I'm very sorry that I gave you a hard time that first day. This was a great experience. I'm, I'm so glad that I did it. And if I could, I would like to reduce my eligibility as well. So uh, I've always found that everyone who serves as a juror really does value the experience. Um, and, and I remember we've had some, uh, as all courts have, sometimes you have some pretty horrific trials. And I remember there was a trial and the jurors were leaving each day, you know, in tears. It was very, very difficult. Uh, and at the end of it, one of them came up to me and said, you know, when I'm on my deathbed and I look back at my life, this is going to be one of the things that I'm most proud of. And, and it really affected me. Uh, and it makes me feel every day when I go home that I've done something well. If I can help the jurors when they're here to do what they do, which is such important work, then, uh, then I've done a, a good job. And, and it, it, I'm blessed to be able to, to, to work with them. And I'm curious right now. Um, so, so how do attorneys go about selecting a jury when when we're there? Well, when you when you get there and you, we've gone through the qualification process, and presumably anyone who's had and there's an exemption that would apply, such as a medical exemption, they've been removed. So when you're there going through the questioning, uh, there's two types of challenges, and a challenge is the ability of the attorney to remove to ask that a juror, a prospective juror, be removed from the panel and not seated. Uh, there's challenges for cause, 
which would be anything that would prevent that juror from being able to make a decision solely based upon the law and the evidence. Uh, that might be a relationship with one of the parties, knowledge, previous knowledge of the case that would make them uh, unable to simply rely on the evidence or, you know, a past experience that would, that would color uh, their ability to make a determination. You have an unlimited number of challenges for cause. So if somebody is, you know, there's a reason that they shouldn't be sitting and they couldn't be fair and impartial, they can be removed and there's no limit on that. Then you have preemptory challenges, and there are challenges that an attorney can use to remove a juror for any reason. It can't be a discriminatory reason, uh, but you can do any, any other reason. You're just seeing the person and you're saying, look, I'm, just, I'm getting a bad vibe with this person. The number of those varies uh, depending on the case. On a civil case, it's three. Each side has three. And on a criminal case, it depends on the, the degree of the charge, the severity of the charge. The more serious the charge, the more of the preemptory challenges each party has. So when you came in and, and, and people go through the questioning process, uh, after that, the, the, each round of questioning, the attorneys would be uh, asking that jurors that are uh, prospective jurors being questioned might be removed from that panel based upon challenges for cause or preemptory challenges until either they all run out of their preemptory challenges and there are no cause challenges anymore, or they just, they feel confident that the jury seated uh, can be fair and impartial. So, so they get a certain number of uh, like a, a quota to, to be dismissed. You get Is well that what again. I'm, I'm hearing the, the, the cause challenges unlimited. Uh, okay. There's a reason, a specific reason. It's unlimited, but yes, you get a certain number of those preemptory challenges. The challenges that you can remove somebody for. You know, they say, oh, yeah, I can hear this case, and I could be fair and impartial. But you just, you know, you just don't think that they should be on. Uh, you know, maybe even occupation that you think might uh, that you'd rather you think might affect the ability to um, to hear your side uh, appropriately. Or again, okay. sometimes you just, you know, I've picked juries and you just say, you know, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it with that person. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take a chance. All right. And then, Paul, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, about uh, juries today and, and uh, what we would expect? I mean, what I, I would say is most people see jury service as a civic obligation. It is. We all have the, the requirement to do this. But I've always seen it as one of our most fundamental rights. Uh, the ability to make these decisions. The jurors really decide what behavior is acceptable in our community and what is not. They protect our rights. They protect our person and our property. They, you know, they determine what we can expect those around us, how, uh, how they should act. These are really the fundamental questions that make our community the place that we want to live in. Uh, so it's a right. It's not only, a, not only is it one of our constitutional rights to have our cases decided by a jury of our peers, but it really is one of our most fundamental rights to be the jurors who actually make those decisions. So I would tell people that it is. It's an inconvenience, uh, but it's important. And, and we often have school kids come and visit the courthouse, and I tell them, I say, if you want to change the world, it's easy. Change the world. Uh, you know, if you want to participate, you know, your, your input does matter. If you choose not to, 
you know, well, then you're really, you're, you're removing your input from the process and you have no right to complain. So I would, I would ask people to take a, the opportunity to take, to see this as an opportunity uh, to come in and really participate and help mold your community to what you think it should be. It really is a very special right. exists and it does here else in the world. Okay. Thank you. Judy, uh, besides your talk, is there anywhere else where uh, my listeners can go to find out more about ancestors being on juries? You know, there there are, I think, probably the most important place, two places where everybody needs to go is, number one, the statutes of the time and place, so that they get a feel for what the qualifications were. And then, Anybody who is doing genealogical research into their families really has to look at the local court records. Those Ulster County jury records, the Orange County jury records, the Rowan County, North Carolina court minutes, that's where the story is going to be told. Okay. And have you made any startling discoveries looking at jury I don't know that I've that I've, I've seen startling discoveries. I mean, I've certainly found some interesting people in my ancestry who were on the other side of the law. <clears throat> but in every family, you're going to find some fun stuff. And I, I spoke on North Carolina courts at the NGS conference, which just concluded in Raleigh. And one of the very first records that exists in Rowan County, North Carolina, this is a county that was created in 1753, it's fining a man named Humphrey Montgomery for not being able to serve as a juror because he was drunk when he arrived in court that day. So fun stuff, interesting stuff, and very personal for our ancestors in these records. Okay. And so uh, we're uh, going to end our show and just uh, very briefly uh, ask both of you about your ancestry. So, uh, Judy, what's your ancestry? And as you're talking about that, do you have one particular ancestor that has been in the court records that you have enjoyed researching? I, I, I absolutely do. On my, my father is a German immigrant. He was born in Germany, came to the United States as a boy with his parents. <laughs> So 100% of my paternal ancestry is in Germany. On my mother's side, it's exclusively in the American South. Came in through southern Maryland in the 1600s and just kept moving south. But my favorite ancestor in the court records has to be my second great-grandfather, George Washington Cottrell. He's the one who qualifies me for membership in the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, you have to prove your ancestor lived in the Republic of Texas. I have no difficulty proving George lived in the Republic of Texas. He was indicted by the Republic of Texas for bigamy the first time, and it only got worse from there. <clears throat> so, yeah, ancestors in the court records can be a lot of fun. I thought he might be the person you you would talk about. <laughs> I love George. He's my favorite ancestor. And and Paul, how about your ancestry? Uh, 
I I have never done really a, a true genealogy uh, research into our family history. Uh, like Judy, I'm Irish, Scotch, so we do hear all the legends. Uh, and I'll just impart one of the legends. It isn't with a person, but it's something I love to pass on, and it kind of shows ex- what Judy was talking about. But the O'Neill family crest is actually a red hand over water, uh, and it's surrounded by the you know the royal lions. Uh, and the story behind that is that that's that red hand is known as the bloody hand of O'Neill. You also it's known as a bloody hand or red hand of Ulster, but it's really the bloody hand of O'Neill. And the story was that when the Irish were going were sailing to Ireland, they said whoever touched the land first gets it. Uh, so uh, the O'Neills, being uh, the foresighted individuals that that we are. One, as they got close, chopped his hand off, uh, threw it on the land. Uh, they were the first ones to touch it. They became high kings of Ireland for, you know, 700 years. No, no basis in fact, no basis in genealogy, but it's always been an interesting story for me. A very interesting story. <laughs> so, Judy and Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. This has just been a fascinating show, and, uh, and so thank you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you so much for having us. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Unforgettable.